0: R&R. Leo is in the office of Mrs. Ogilvy, housekeeper at the local hospital. He is interviewing for a summer job. It is the spring of his junior year in high school, and he is now old enough to work. He needs to save money for college. As the newspaper article his father cut out and posted in the kitchen proclaims, to earn more you must learn more. His father never went to college. Mrs. Ogilvy is a short woman in her 60s. She dresses all in white like a nurse, but wears no nurse's cap. Her small mouth is a perfect oval of bright red lipstick. Her eyes are piercing and dark. Leo stands tall before her, hands clasped behind his back to conceal his nervousness. Mrs. Ogilvy is reading his application. Well, Lionel, she says at last, we have an opening for a... I'm called Leo, ma'am. As in Leo the Lion? Yes, my favorite kid's book. Actually, my older brother should have been named Lionel, after my father and grandfather. Then he might have been called Leo. Mrs. Ogilvy looks confused, yet curious, and... Why is that? His name's Leonard. L-E-O-I-C. I see. Leo's nervousness resolves itself in further speech. You see, my father named him Leonard after Major General Leonard Wood. Dad was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood during World War II, but he never was shipped overseas, which is probably why Lenny and I and our younger brother Larry was born in the first place. Most of Dad's unit never returned. And why am I rattling on like this, for Christ's sake, Leo is wondering. This is a job interview. But he feels the need to explain because she called him Lionel and he absolutely hates his name. He's never met anybody with the name of Lionel. Each year at the beginning of school, all the way back to kindergarten, for Christ's sake, he's shuddered when the teacher calls the roll. Because as soon as she gets to the G's and says Lionel Green, the class erupts and the mockery begins. Lionel, Lionel. The only Lionel he's ever heard of is Lionel Hampton, the black jazz artist who plays the vibraphone. It's a good thing he's on the basketball team and not in the band. Fort Leonard Wood is responsible for his very existence as well as his name and his father won't let him or his brothers forget it, all because his father knew how to type. How many times have they heard the story? After basic training, the CO said, can anyone here handle a typewriter? His father raised his hand, was sent to an office, and plunked down behind a desk, stateside, for the duration of the war, ensuring the next generation of greens, and Lenny's first name. Then Lenny gave Leo his nickname because of that kid's book. Leo pauses for a response, but when Mrs. Ogilvy is silent, he shifts his weight and continues. My grandfather was exempt from World War I because of his job at Remington Arms, but his grandfather fought against his own brother in the Civil War. Can you imagine that? Fighting your own brother? And now this Vietnam thing is heating up. Well, Mrs. Ogilvy says, you're lucky. Our draft board is deferring college students. That's why I need a job to save for college. My father thinks college is all about earning money, but it's more than that. Avoiding the draft, you mean? No, no, it's about reading great books and thinking great thoughts. And Leo pauses again, certain now that he's blowing this interview, blowing the job he will need this summer. Leonard Wood, Mrs. Ogilvy says, as if it's anything but a non-sequitur, was a doctor, you know. No, Leo says, I, I didn't. I just know he helped Teddy Roosevelt recruit the Rough Riders for the Spanish-American War. My dad told us about that. Mrs. Ogilvy smiles. Leonard Wood won the Medal of Honor. He was being groomed to be Roosevelt's political heir but he lost the Republican nomination to Warren Harding on the 10th ballot. And for the record, young man, and here her smile broadens, I think Lionel is a very nice name. Leo grins sheepishly. No one's ever told me that. Not even your parents? They don't count. I see, I see. Mrs. Ogilvie smiles yet again and then takes a deep breath. Well, Leo, as I was about to say before we got on to how you got your name, housekeeping currently has an opening for a wall washer. It's not a very popular position, which is why it's still available. And if it's still available when school gets out in June, the job will be yours. I'll be back, Leo says convincingly. You can count on it. In fact, I was here once before in the ER just last year. I almost lost my life... My leg. I got a bit of hemp stuck in my calf, climbing the ropes in gym. It developed into blood poisoning and had the doctor scared. Suddenly, Mrs. Ogilvy seems to be looking right through him, talking to no one. My son wasn't so lucky. He was wounded in Korea. Blood poisoning killed him. Oh, no, Leo says. I'm so sorry. Don't be. His blood was poisoned already. Huh? Leo blinks. I I don't understand. Syphilis from R&R in Kyoto, Japan. He was so ashamed he tried to get himself killed as soon as he returned to combat. He never wanted me to know. It is Leo's turn to fall silent. You know what R&R is, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Rock and roll. No, Leo, rest and recuperation, rest and recuperation. Kyoto had special places for that, and my son took advantage of them. He couldn't wait to get away from home. He didn't want to go to college. Leo takes a step backward, suddenly wishing for this interview to end. Mrs. Ogilvy is no longer looking through him, but nailing him square in the eyes. Yet her tone, surprisingly, when she speaks again, turns motherly. So you've been here before, have you, Leo? Well, then, we can consider you experienced. Leo has never thought of blood poisoning as experience, a kind of war wound. But he'd never know about R&R because he'd go to grad school after college. Lenny would get married before the law was changed disqualifying him for service. And Larry, Lucky Larry they would call him, would draw a safe number when a draft lottery became necessary for Vietnam, where friends they'd grown up with would die. Waiting for the bus outside the hospital, Leah was struck by a new thought. Maybe Mrs. Ogilvy meant he was experienced only because he'd been to the ER and was familiar with the hospital either way he didn't want to think about it
1: welcome to second hand stories i'm your host jim zabo thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today we start today's episode off a little differently, as I'm sure you've noticed. That story was called R&R, and it was written and read by Claude Smith. Claude Clayton Smith, Professor Emeritus of English at Ohio Northern University, lives in Madison, Wisconsin, with his wife of 40 years, who is his first reader and editor. He is the author of seven books, including an historical novel, The Stratford Devil, Two Little Golden Books, The Cow and the Elephant, and the Gull that lost the sea, and four books of creative nonfiction: Ohio Outback, Lapping America, Red Men in Red Square, and Quarter Acre of Heartache. He is also co-editor slash translator of *The Way of Kinship* and *Meditations After the Bear Feast*. His own books have been translated into five languages, including Russian and Chinese. In addition, he has published a novella, *Garbage Canes* a mini chapbook of poetry, love notes, plus more than 50 individual poems and journals and anthologies, along with a dozen short stories, several dozen essays, and works of creative nonfiction. Four of his plays have been selected for staging and competition, one of which went on to a professional production. He holds a D.A. from Carnegie Mellon, an M.F.A. in fiction from the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, an M.A.T. from Yale, and a B.A. from Westland, For further information, including an interview with the author, see his website, claudeclaytonsmith.wordpress.com. We want more stories like Claude's that help set the tone for our episodes. What we did was we put out a call to flash fiction writers and asked for an original story based on the stories we had already selected for that episode. That way it really has the same mood and theme as the rest of the stories. Claude is our first and only taker so far, so if you're interested in doing this too, please email me at jim at secondhandpodcast.com with the subject line, Flash Fiction Opportunity. This is our Memorial Day episode. Memorial Day is coming up real soon. We had some stories about war, some stories written by veterans, and thought this was a nice time to include them. I'd like to provide a general warning that all of our stories today grapple with suicide in one way or another and deal with some mature content and themes. Next up, we have Clayton Bradshaw's story, How to Care for Hyacinths. Clayton served eight years in the U.S. Army as an infantryman. He dealt with issues relating to post-traumatic stress and the disintegration of his personal life before finding a new calling at Sam Houston State University. He currently studies English with an emphasis in creative writing. His writing tends to revolve around post-military life as he continues to develop an understanding of all he has seen. He is applying to various graduate programs in English and creative writing in the hopes that he can transfer his lessons to others who deal with similar issues and those who seek to understand what life is like for a combat veteran. He would like to serve as a voice for the current generation of veterans. His poetry and prose can be found in Beacon, the literary magazine for Sam Houston State. This story speaks on the effects of combat on memory. This isn't part of his bio, but I'm very happy to report that Clayton graduated last Friday with a 4.0 and will be starting his Master's in Fine Arts at Texas State in August. Here is Clayton Bradshaw reading his story, How to Care for Hyacinths.
2: I would like to say thank you to the secondhand stories for allowing me to share my work with you. Also, this story was just published in the spring 2017 edition of the Deadly Riders Patrol. How to Care for Hyacinths. You read somewhere once that hyacinths grew in Iraq, long before you were there, some sort of poetic statement on consequence, a political statement on culpability, or maybe just an extra level of bullshit to distract you from the mission. The Iraq you knew was mud in the street and shit in the canals. October was supposed to be the time of the year when the leaves change and the weather cools. But in Baghdad, the sun cared less for soldiers than the leaders that sent you down roads pockmarked by IEDs. You found yourself returning from patrol and blistering humidity looking as though you decided to take a plunge in one of Saddam's pools. Your squad would leave the vehicles and immediately run to the chow hall before closing time, but the cooks turned you away at the door, claiming that filthy soldiers were a violation of the health code. They did not care what your stomach had to say. You began to look forward to the night missions, when your nods would fog up and you would remove them because there was an abundance of street light anyways. You felt a return to the eight-pound balance of your Kevlar helmet, the night vision device no longer pulling you down the street. The humidity made you feel as though you we were swimming from house to house, but the decrease in helmet weight and the coolness in the night air kept one foot in front of the other as you yawned every few meters. Al-Qaeda, or jeshimati or one of the other 20,000 terror cells had sabotaged the water lines, flooding the street and compounding the smell of shit. Your feet swelled from soaking up the water and wrinkled into yellow fungi. The neighborhood stayed ghostly quiet most of the time. The ancient female goat herders with dark mascara and full sleeves of blue tattoos on leathery skin seemed to be the only ones willing to break curfew. They would stare at you through the dusty lamplight, sending satanic spells that would creep you the fuck out. Once, Sergeant Tony fired a warning shot a few feet from the hooves of the lead goat. The women stood still in their trances for a moment, then a shrill rolling of screaming tongues burst from their lungs as they tended to the wounded leg of a goat caught by the ricochet. They pointed at Tony, spewing curse after curse through the blue ink on their lips. His sunburned face went pale, and he slowed down his pace for the rest of the patrol. When we began to get ready to head out under the cool starlight a few nights later, Sergeant Armstrong sent us to check on Tony. You knocked on the door of his room, really just a shipping container, converted into a tiny apartment. After a few minutes, you banged on it again, kicking it with your foot and screaming for Sergeant Tony. You twisted the knob and entered the pitch-black room. A flip of the light switch revealed four empty cans of air duster sitting next to your unconscious squad leader. You put your ear to Tony's mouth and yelled at me to grab Doc Yates, so I ran as fast as I could back to the staging area, returning a few minutes later with half the platoon on my heels. Sergeant Armstrong pulled you to the side as Yates checked Tony's pulse. What happened? asked Armstrong. I don't know, Sergeant. We walked in on him like this. Oh, shit. A few days later, Sergeant Armstrong walked up the central aisle in the chapel alone, placed one hand on the dog tags hanging off the rifle stuffed into Tony's boots, and cried the only tears you ever saw him cry. You never took Armstrong for being very sentimental, but he placed a piece of paper next to the small batch of unicorns on the display. After you walked up and saluted, paying your respects, you looked down and saw a child's painting of bulbous blue flowers, petals swirling like mingled starfish. Hyacinths. The next evening, your platoon walked down the streets, a squad on each side of the road spaced out at least six feet apart. You cut any low-hanging cables or wires that stretched into your path and entered the courtyards over the walls. Oliver normally found himself voluntold to jump over first, cursing when the wall was covered in glue and broken glass. You and Sergeant Armstrong cleared through each room as Oliver watched the door. You opened locked doors with a dull knife, and Armstrong cut open bags of rice climbed upstairs to the rooftop and hopped across to the next to begin the process over again. One house seemed much more palatial than the others. Its glass windows glared as the window unit air conditioners provided a breeze across your bare ass as you used the first commode you had seen since coming to this godforsaken country. The interpreter slid his fingers down the railing of the double staircase as he explained that only women sit when they defecate. Sergeant Armstrong wanted a firefight to break out, Bullets tearing through light blue wall tile, showering pristine toilets, shorting out television sets, and sending dusty grout in the air, around the staircase like smoke. The LT claimed that the economically disadvantaged home next door would serve our purposes better. Their little outhouse with a hole in the ground would be more easily repaired, and mud walls can be fixed quite a bit more cheaply. Well, that's boring, Armstrong said. Pick up. Break's over. Let's get moving. Your squad continued to walk with the LT in tow. You saw him raise his rifle at a couple of cats. He slapped his radio operator on the back of the head and asked for the hand mic. He muttered a few words into the receiver, then pointed at me to speed up a little. You realize that you should be paying more attention to your surroundings. You watched the gray road and the dull brown walls as they slowly crept by. The dusky light did not help you maintain focus as you placed one foot in front of the other. You began to drift into your thoughts, moving from walking patrol to a battalion run through the streets of Fort Lewis. After four miles, I had tripped on a loose rock while descending a steep slope. Lieutenant Hendricks stopped to check on me. What the fuck, Ratla? Thought you could keep up. I leaned on one arm as I stood up, supporting my weight on the uninjured side. It was just a rock, sir. I'll catch back up. I gently shifted my weight to a shaking ankle. I began a slow jog, clenched teeth visible through a sweaty face. The sharp pain made my left ankle sway side to side. Hell no, jackass, to Hendricks said to me as he jogged next to me. Your piece of shit ass is going to wait for the fallout group to catch up. You finish with them. When we get back, I'm going to personally run you until you decide to give up. There will not be any weak-ass motherfuckers in my platoon. I'm not weak, sir. I'll catch up. So you want to disobey and disrespect me? Arkel, 15, shitbag. I'm taking what little rink you have. Roger, sir. I slowed to a walk, unsure if my face was hot from the exercise or the built-up tension in my chest. When Sergeant Armstrong arrived with the fallouts, he glared at me. Start running. I nodded my head and jogged with a clear limp. I felt my grimace return. You hurt? Armstrong asked. Yes, sir, but I can make it. LT made me stay back. You got balls, Ratliff, but don't hurt yourself. I have a feeling I'm going to need you healthy. There should be a five-ton on the road a little farther up. Hop on when we get up there. A few minutes later, I jumped into the back of the five-ton and finished the run in style. I limped into the rear of the formation just as the battalion commander began to read the deployment orders. Afterwards, the L.T. made good on his promise to run me into submission. I spent the next two weeks on crutches. The day that I no longer needed him, we marched endlessly through the training area for hours on end. Step after step, you found yourself bored from the slow pace, forgetting to keep your head on the cliched swivel. Your memories and anxieties bubbled to the forefront of your mind as you imagined what Baghdad would be like. You could see it. Almost feel it. Pop! The snap on your foot sent adrenaline rushing upwards through your body and you uttered a quick, fuck. Armstrong sprinted over to you. What happened? You both looked at the broken fluorescent light bulb. Armstrong smiled. Loud noises. He whispered loudly to the LT. Hendricks walked over and flicked your nose with his thumb and middle finger. A few hours later we stopped to rest in a small house with a television set blaring Al Jazeera. You could almost see our little patrol on the screen as Arabic voiced over images of soldiers strolled over bridges and overpasses. You argued with Oliver about whether or not one of the clips showed the platoon on our last patrol. I tried to stay out of it, but Oliver forced my opinion. That was definitely not us. All patrols just looked the same. You sat beside the window, watching the outside from an angle. A dim light bulb illuminated the courtyard. You could see the broken glass and glue sparkling on the courtyard wall. You heard Sergeant Armstrong open the front door and saw him unscrew the bulb. Back to darkness. You clipped the night vision back onto your helmet. A man screamed at the LT and Sergeant Armstrong in the next room. Sanchez, the LT's radio operator, began to raise his rifle to his cheek, but the interpreter touched his arm. He spoke to the man in Arabic for a few minutes before turning to the LT. Apparently, the man's children were not performing well in school and did not need any more distractions. Sergeant Armstrong laughed before asking if he could speak to the children. The man brought in an 8-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl, but really a malnourished 13-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy. You kids need to pay attention in school. You'll end up carrying a gun down the street waiting to get blasted like me. My kids get their asses beat if they don't do their homework. Do your fucking homework. Armstrong told him. The interpreter spoke to the children in their native tongue. The boy, who was really a girl, returned a few quick words. She says, Fuck you. You aren't my dad. No shit. Maybe these kids aren't so different than mine after all. He laughed and pointed a middle finger at the kid. This means America number one. The translator repeated the phrase and the girl mimicked the gesture. The boy brought me a hyacinth flower, and I let him place it on my helmet. Take it off before we leave, Armstrong told me. You look back in time to watch the LT reach for the flower, just before everything went to shit. A pop sounded to your right, and then a crack down the street, followed by a lot more cracks. AK-47 fire. You scanned the rooftops around us with your night vision but couldn't see anything. Armstrong bellowed at you. Where the fuck is it at? The three o'clock. I can't see where at, though. I think it's over by third platoon. Sanchez handed the mic to the LT, who whispered a weak roger. And motioned for Armstrong. You need know, to get over by third. The other squads are going to cover while we attack down this street. I'll take Sanchez and one of yours with me on this side of the road. You take the rest of the squad on the far side. Sir, we shouldn't be running directly into it. We need to flank around. One of the other squads can do that while we provide overwatch. We're doing what I said to do. Sir, you're going to get someone killed if you go down that street. My platoon, do what I say. Sir, at least get one of the other squads to attack, Armstrong began. You shouldn't be leading an assault. Not your lane. Just do what the fuck I say. Roger, sir. Armstrong screamed at me to go with the LT. He tapped you and Oliver on the shoulder, and they followed him out of the house, through the courtyard, and into the street. I followed Sanchez and the LT, and they did the same. You started walking towards the gunfire, cracks and pops increasing in frequency and volume. A few minutes later, Armstrong pointed at a courtyard with an open gate. You faced the rear as Oliver wedged himself between you and Armstrong. Armstrong leaned back into the stack and all three of you entered the courtyard, Armstrong to the right and Oliver to the left. You pivoted around and watched the gate. Armstrong pointed at you and Oliver to stack on the front door, and you repeated the process again and again until you reached the roof. Oliver, you watch the roof entrance. Fuller, get the saw next to me. We've got to cover the LT's movement, Armstrong said. The other two squads set up in similar manners on the adjacent rooftops. You pointed your machine gun towards the buildings across the street. Muzzle flashes flickered in the windows, accompanied the gunfire. You squeezed the trigger for a few seconds, and the rumble of 556 five, rounds permeated your bone marrow with masturbatory satisfaction. Releasing the trigger, you yearned to squeeze it again to feel the cathartic release. Armstrong fired five quick rounds, allowing you to let loose another barrage into the oscillating flashes. A few bullets snapped past your ears as you watched me follow the LT and Sanchez out of the courtyard to the right side of the street. We rushed, five meters apart, from cover to cover, finally reaching the courtyard across the street. Fast walking smoothly and tightly together, we breached the courtyard and moved towards the building. A few bullets hit a little too closely to your rooftop cover, so you ducked down quickly before standing up and releasing a ten-second blast of ammunition. You discarded the empty drum and clipped on a new one. Armstrong motioned for you and Oliver to follow him downstairs. You made it down to the courtyard and dropped to a knee next to the courtyard wall. Your protective glasses fogged up, so you took them off and stuffed them in your pocket. Armstrong held up three fingers. Then he put down one. Before he could count down past two, the courtyard wall shook. A loud boom accompanied the gray dust and rocks flying overhead. Shit, Armstrong said before speaking into his radio. Spartan Six, are you okay? You heard the staticky response in the platoon sergeant's voice. Get over here. They don't look good. Second squad, get over there too. We're going to need the medevac. Armstrong screamed at you and Oliver to follow him. You twisted your ankle on a chunk of rubble and fell to the ground, but you quickly got back to your feet and caught up with Oliver just as he and Armstrong entered the courtyard. Armstrong pointed at you to guard the blackened entrance hole to the building, so you took a knee five meters and forty-five degrees away from it. Oliver trained his weapon on the windows overhead. Two minutes later, the second squad leader tapped you on the shoulder, and you lowered your machine gun while backing up a few inches into something sticky. Looking down, you saw a mass of melted gummy worms covered in dirt. A ballistic vest lay a few feet away. You rubbed the dirt and grew off to read my name, quickly realizing that was all that was left of me. Second squad breached the building as you screamed for Armstrong. Got an IBA over here. A lot of pieces. I think it belongs to Ratliff. Shit. Oliver, you see anyone? Armstrong asked. The LT's helmet, he's fucked. Nothing left, Oliver said. Shit. Anyone see Sanchez? You looked around the courtyard and saw a body lying against the wall. Over there. You and Armstrong rustled Sanchez, who was covered in blood. A few rounds popped off inside the building. And the second squad reported the building cleared over the radio. God damn it, at least he's intact, Armstrong said. He spoke into his radio. Hey, seven, we need Doc over here. LT and Ratler for KA, but I think Sanchez is still breathing. Courtyard is secure. Roger, I'm on my way. A striker revved its engine and pulled into the front of the courtyard. The platoon sergeant and Doc Yates entered, and the medic began checking Sanchez's pulse. He pulled off his body armor and looked for any abnormalities. I think he's good, Yates said. He's unconscious but breathing. Lucky like bastard. We just need to get him on the medevac. What about the blood? You asked. Not his. The grenadier from second squad ran out to the striker and returned with a couple of body bags. You and Oliver helped him pick up the remnants wherever you could find them. The blackened goo stuck to your gloves, and my helmet was nearly embedded in the courtyard wall. You found the LT's boot, complete with the bloody shin, on the concrete pathway leading up to the door. The burnt hair smell wafted into your nostrils as you peeled my skin from the side of one of my gloves before you dropped it when you realized what you were doing. The company commander walked in with the first sergeant, stopping to pick up a piece of shattered vertebrae. Well, that's the end of Port Ratliff, isn't it? First sergeant said. He walked up to the platoon sergeant. You're going to have to take Sanchez back to the cache yourself. I don't want to bring a burden here until the company finishes clearing the area. Roger. Platoon sergeant talked into his radio. Mount up. Put Sanchez in my truck. The body bags go one per vehicle. Let's get the fuck out of here. You grab the body bag with my body armor and a mix of goo. You hopped in the striker behind Armstrong and Oliver before dropping the body bag on the floor and kicking the ramp three times as it rose. You laid yourself down on the bench seat and drifted off to the mechanical lullaby of the engine. A few days later, the red sky assaulted the fob with a pounding of dust. The sand wedged its way through the seams of the oversized tent and into the corner where random colonels stood, staring at the display before them. Two pairs of boots, two rifles standing muscle into the ground, two helmets sitting on the buttstocks, and two hanging sets of dog tags formed a pair of near-crucifixes. Sanchez sat in the first row of folding chairs, hands on his lap, staring at the LT's photograph. His right fist clenched a coin with a brigade commander's rank on it. Five hundred soldiers filed into the makeshift chapel. Colonels and majors who had just driven in were given seats of honor on the front row of Sanchez. When the room ran out, he ascended to the second row, then the third. He eventually walked to the back of the room and stood. You walked over and softly slapped his shoulder. Oliver and Armstrong stood next to you as the company commander walked to the podium. He wiped away a few tears and called on the chaplain for a prayer. Once the chaplain finished, the commander said, Amen, chaplain. Lieutenant Hendricks served this company well. When he got to Fort Lewis, I knew he would be a good officer. I feel privileged for serving with him. His sacrifice means a lot to us all. The same can be said for Specialist Ratliff. To speak on his dear friend, here, Specialist Chris Fuller. You walked up to my dog tags, gave a slow salute and touched the cheap metal, looking for some kind of supernatural transfer an inspiration for what you were about to say. You placed a hyacinth blossom in the strap around the display helmet before pivoting left and walking up to the podium. I know that I am supposed to spout some cliché about Ratliff's duty and honor and ultimate sacrifice, but I only remember him as this kid who actually thought Batman could beat Superman in a fight. Called Oliver out on his bullshit once. For not cleaning his room, making him stay behind, cleaning it on a Friday night. Oliver's punch split his eyebrow wide open. And he hated the army. Just didn't for the college money. As for Lieutenant Hendricks, he was just a dick. He stepped off the stage to the glare of the first-arm. The soldiers seated in the rows of chairs stood to take turns walking up to the dog tags and rendering slow salutes. The first-arm grabbed you by the arm and pulled you off to the side. What the hell is wrong with you? Don't you know that there are fucking generals here? I do, first-arm, you said. And they can go to hell. You walked out of the tent into the dust. Your eyes stung from the grains of sand flying like tiny bullets through the air, but you closed your eyelids and pushed through the wall of sand until you opened them to the pistol on your kitchen table. You look at the gun, then look back at me, at least the picture of me in my green dress uniform. You stare through the photograph of the blood-stained body armor and the black goo that covered it. You pull the magazine out and push it back in over and over again. Sorry, you say. I try to tell you that it is not your fault, but you refuse to listen, choosing instead to dig through the pile of old uniforms on the table and find your cell phone. After fumbling around on the keypad for a few minutes, the other end begins to ring. Tiff says hello. You know, I always liked her. When she comes over, I should leave you two alone. You need a break from me dogging you, endlessly harassing you. I really just want to share another beer in front of a baseball game, another chance to rile up Oliver, another chance just to sit around and bitch about the LT. And I realize I cannot have these things. Maybe I can be reincarnated as a hyacinth or some other kind of Mediterranean flora. But the reality is that magical metamorphoses never occur at the end of a life cycle. The dead are just dust, with spirits conjured up every time someone has a few drinks. And here comes Tiff. I should leave you two alone.
1: This next story is not centered around war or combat in the traditional sense, but I think there are some clear parallels. Anyway, the story is called Fate and Starlight by Christine Estoper. Christine just likes to write. That's pretty much it. No, really. She's a pretty boring person if you take away the writing thing. Well, maybe not really. She's a former Marine, though if you ask any veteran, there is no such thing as a former Marine. She once called Japan her home. South Korea her vacation spot, and now she's stuck in North Carolina. For how long? Who knows. The military is stressful. That's what she tells any kid who wants to join up. Her, a 23-year-old. Can you imagine? So, to combat that stress, she's writing, she's creating, and she's publishing the story she's got to show the world. It's something she's feared doing for a long time, but you know what? She's traversed the Korean DMZ She's walked in the shadows of kids burnt to smithereens in Okinawan caves, and she's repelled from helicopters, so she sure as hell can do this. Hell yes she can. Here is Christine Estopère's Fate and Starlight. Trust me when I say I did not believe her. Trust me when I say she says one thing and does another. The woman was an enigma of lies. A child of fate and starlight who shrugged off her destiny in favour of parting her legs and selling her soul to those with dark intentions. Momoka was a woman who believed women could have love, happiness, and then some. In this male dominated world, her beliefs were simply cast offs of a different age, an age long past where women could lead and men would bow down in blood drenched soil. We are united now. Women are no longer needed in leadership positions. We are born now to follow. And I believe this realization took Momoka's breath far before she scattered her own lifeblood upon the floorboards. Trust me when I say that none of us expected this. Trust me when I say, I am sorry, but she will not be missed. For who could love a liar? Hours before... During the evening of a day that feels like yesteryear, Momoka gathered the five of us in her quarters. I remember her face so clearly, because her corpse is an exact copy. She seemed drained. Papery skin was yellowed, like old parchment, weathered around her red lips. Creases and lines bunched up, like so many rivers on an old map. She could not kneel like the rest of us, and so she simply sat cross-legged, hands on either knee, head bowed beneath the weight of her own hair. She smiled at each of us in turn, though would meet none of our eyes. I remember one of the girls snickering. Rocking back and forth on her knees, she stared into Momoka's tired eyes and giggled. Getting old, she said, in reference to Momoka's inability to kneel. Momoka took the insult with care. Clasping her hands to her chest, she sighed too old for this world. And the giggler chuckled loudly. Turning, she spewed her happiness upon the rest of us. As a child, I was taught not to laugh at the misfortune of others. But as laughter rolled around the cozy room, I found myself giggling as well. Momoka did not so much as flinch. Poor old woman, I thought, as she took a lock of wild hair and forced it behind her wilted ear old woman, I laugh at the title now, because she was not old at the time, not in the typical sense of the word. Though older than all five of us, she was only in her late twenties when she decided that the world was not enough for her. But she would tell us this point blank, as bluntly and as flatly as she could. But not before the laughter died and a feeling of unease took over, the slow silence, a thick blanket that choked. Momoka held out her arms, the sleeves of her robe trailing upon the tatami matting. I am taking my life tonight. My eyebrows furrowed, confusion twisting all of the girls' faces. They were quick to challenge her. We were quick. And what do you expect us to do, Momo? asked the strongest of us, crossing her arms as she did so. Do you want us to talk you out of it? Momoka shook her head. "'No,' she breathed. "'I just wanted to say goodbye.' "'The first speaker snorted her disdain. "'Right. Here I go, Momo.' "'Gently, crawling onto her hands and knees, "'she clasped her hands before herself in a pleading gesture. "'Please don't go, Momo. "'The bordello will not be the same without you.' "'And she writhed on the ground, "'earning a few chuckles from the others.' that is when the room gained strength, the girls beginning to believe that this was all for attention. For, with Momoka, it often was. Three times she has threatened to take her own life. First, with a fistful of nameless herbs. Second, with a sword she could not find. And third, like this, in a nameless, nondescript way, with a calm and cold demeanor. Let me say, it is hard to listen to the whistling bird when it screams its songs in the dead of night. Constantly, constantly, it sings and swells its breast when the moon is high. Yet, in the morning, it is silent, as deathly quiet as a winter morning. Momoka was all this and more. How do you plan to do it? one girl asked. Does a cane endorse this? We won't be blamed for it, will we? What will you use this time, Momo? asked another, this one closer to me. Will you use a letter opener? Oh, you know a cane doesn't let us have sharp things. I grimaced, as if being pelted by these asinine questions. All that was left to ask now was, When will you do it? I found myself asking. At what time? Do it late in the morning, I said, Chuckles rising all about me so that when a cane finds her body, we won't lose sleep. And the chuckles erupted into a roar of laughter, the girls closest to me touching my shoulder her thighs in recognition of a job well done. Ah, I basked in the glory, if only to wallow in the lies and misfortune of another. Momoka stooped in her cross-legged position, eyes reddening, face turning the color of burnt coal. There was no, this is serious this time, nor any sort of counter against our harsh questions. Though she did not answer them, we did not ask her to, for we truly believed this was another gimmick to get eyes on her. We believed Momoka could not do it. She loved herself too much. She stewed in the bottomless pot of her lineage, telling us over and over how she was better than us baseless prostitutes and a memory forces me to speak up once more. A memory of her. As lattice girls, we sit behind a crisscrossed fence of wood during the height of the day. This is done to call paying customers to our bordello for a chance to take one of us. For a chance to buy and sell and trade in human flesh. Momoka was the original lattice girl. When a new girl arrived... Momo's was the first face she'd often see. Being the most senior of us all, Momo would take to showing the new girl around and laying down the ground rules we all had to follow. I remember being new and terrified, crying behind the lattice cage as faces peered in at me, their expressions blurred. The constant noise of Yoshiwara muffled by my cries. No crying, a rule I was told on day one. It was the first rule I broke, and the first thing I was ever punished for. I am more than the wood of this latticed cage, I remember Momo hissing, eyes glaring through the wood bars of our waiting room. The heat in our cage was stifling, and her agitation showed in her words. I am more than they could ever be. On that wood floor, I am wincing, because she has dug her nails into my arm. Her talons cut deep as deep as any knife. The nails draw blood, and she backs away, stricken at what she has done to mark me. And now, in the present, I touch the marks she so lovingly left me, marks which quickly became infected and stole my right arm from me months ago, perhaps years. There is a ghost there now, a phantom limb which I can touch and see and feel, pain throbs from fingers which aren't there, and I close them, reminding myself of who took my right arm from me. Because of her, I tell myself, I am crippled. And I realize that I hope she does it. I realize in that present moment, surrounded by my fellow Bordello sisters, that I want Momoka to pass on and leave this world, my world, behind. I meet her eyes in that moment. I say, I will help you. Silence. She blinks three times, wiping away tears with her eyelids. It is as if the entire room is holding its breath. And she responds, No, you will not. It feels as if a heavy stone has been lifted from my chest when she says this, but I did not believe she would actually do it. None of us did. But, nevertheless, My admonition quieted the room, and then other girls began to join in, from the junior to the most senior of us. I will help you, came a voice from behind me. The strongest of us puffed out her chest. I will help you. I will help you, Momo, came another, and it went on like this, all five of us pledging our allegiance to Momoka, willing to help her pass on into the next life. Of course, we believed this was an elaborate hoax. But Momoka did not. Reserved as she was in the moment, she stood and bowed and turned her back to us. We stood as well, gathering to leave. Eyes fell upon me, grins meeting them as the girls nodded at me. One by one, the girls left Momoka's room. Roving down the dark hallway beyond, in a gathering of high-pitched voices and giggles. No one will miss you, you know, I say before I leave. I hear her shake. I hear her tremble and cry. Lastly, we have The Man Who Shot Stonewall Jackson by Gary Beck. You'll remember Gary's story, Intrusion, from episode 11. Gary Beck has spent most of his adult life as a theater director and as an art dealer when he couldn't make a living in theater. He has 11 published chapbooks and three more accepted for publication. His poetry collections include Days of Destruction, Skyve Press, Expectations, Rogue Scholars Press, Dawn in Cities, Assault on Nature, Songs of a Clerk, Civilized Ways, Displays, Perceptions, Winter Goose Publishing. Fault Lines, Tremors, Perturbations, Rude Awakenings, and the Remission of Order will be published by Winter Goose Publishing. Conditioned Response, Nazarlook, Resonance, Dreaming Big Publications. His novels include Extreme Change, Cogwheel Press, Flawed Connections, Black Rose Writing, and Call to Valor, Gnome on Pigs production. Acts of Defiance will be published by Dreaming Big Publications, Sun Conflicts by Lilycat Publishers, and State of Rage by Rainy Day Reads Publishing. His short story collection, A Glimpse of Youth, Sweatshop Productions, Now I Accuse* and Other Stories, will be published by Wintergoose Publishing. His original plays and translations of Moliere, Aristophanes, and Sophocles have been produced off-Broadway. His poetry, fiction, and essays have appeared in hundreds of literary magazines. He currently lives in New York City. Here's Gary Beck reading his story, The Man Who Shot Stonewall Jackson.
3: The Man Who Shot Stonewall Jackson, a short story by Gary Beck. It happened once before, when I was a young man, the newspapers clamored for war, Self-appointed know-it-alls told us why we had a fight, and everyone believed them, especially the youngsters like me, who got all fired up to join the army. So now, when those big headlines screamed, Remember the Maine? There wasn't any doubt that there would be war with Spain. And off they went to enlist, just like they were going to a picnic, as irreverent and ignorant as we were back in 1861. My eldest son told me he had to join up, and I tried to discourage him. I told him how crazy it was for two groups of men to stand and blaze away at each other, but he wouldn't listen. All he said was, War's not fought that way anymore, Pa. So I held my peace and watched him go, like my Pa watched me go. When he died of yellow fever, before he even fought in a battle, It was another terrible affliction that I had to accept. But I guess he was right about it being a new kind of war, because it was over pretty quick, and we got all these new places, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam. I never even heard of Guam. So I kept on farming and doing my chores, but I was pretty much empty inside. I had been that way ever since the surrender at Appomattox, which ended my daily suffering, but left me a hollow man. I went through all the motions of living and tried my best to be a good husband and father, and I never told anyone how I felt. How could anyone who hadn't been there understand? Sometimes, when I went to town and saw the few old hands who survived the entire war, like me, There was nothing we could say. We just looked at each other for a moment, nodded in recognition that we were still alive and moved on. Then one day, long after Spain surrendered, I saw a soldier who had just come home from the Philippines. I was buying something in Dahlgren's general store and his pa brought him in. He had that look that I hadn't seen since the war with the Yankees. His flesh was sagging on his bones, and his uniform hung on him like a scarecrow on a hard-luck farm. He walked as if it was a great effort to put one foot after the other. Old Mr. Dahlgren kept prodding him to tell us what it was like over there, but he refused to talk until his pa urged him. Then he looked at everyone for a moment and said coldly, You want to know what it was like? I'll tell you. I watched my buddies die in ambushes, or of tropical diseases, or in battles with savages who just kept coming at us, even after we shot them. I watched my friends butcher women and children. A look of absolute horror ate his face. All I saw was death and suffering. Is that what you wanted to hear? Then he turned and walked out. I couldn't get him out of my mind the rest of the day. That night, I thought about the war with the Yankees, which I had shut out of my life a long time ago. I remembered how I had rushed to join up that spring of 1861. I ignored Pa when he told me not to go, just like my boy ignored me. Then Pa told me how bad it was when he fought the Mexicans in 46, but I didn't believe him. Everyone I knew was hurrying to the colors, and I wasn't about to be last. We were going to whip the Yankees good, then go back home with our chest full of medals. Once I was in uniform, it didn't take long for me to wake up. Almost half the boys I joined up with got killed or wounded in our first battle at Manassas. Maybe the Yankees finally ran off as fast as they could for washington d c but not before they put up a mighty good fight. We fought up and down Virginia for the next two years, and got leaner, hungrier, tireder, and sicker. The more we ran out of ammunition, food, or shoes, the more the Yankees kept coming. We learned everything about the horror of soldiering the hard way. One day, we were camped somewhere near Chancellorsville after a tough battle where we whipped the Yankees good. Of course, it wasn't like when the war first started, Then we knew we were better men than the city folk and immigrants they were going to send against us. Before first manassas, most of us talked about beating them proper, then going home. If anyone thought it would go on for years, they didn't say it where I heard. Anyhow, we had been resting because it had been a long, hard fight. And these Yankees weren't like the rabbits who used to run when they were beaten. When these Yankees lost, they retreated resentfully and we knew they'd be back. Then the word raced through the camp. Stonewall was dead. Rumors like disease travel swiftly in an army, especially when it's bad news. This hit me and the old hands particularly hard, because we were the 31st Virginia and Stonewall's men from the beginning. We rushed to Colonel Barstow's tent, but he didn't know any more than we did. Messengers kept arriving, each one with different news. The only thing they all agreed on was that Stonewall had been shot. The colonel finally got tired of our pushing and shoving at the messengers, and he sent us back to our bivouac area. But he promised to let our company commander, Lieutenant Rambeau, know as soon as he learned anything. We thanked the colonel, who was one of only three officers left in the regiment who had been with us from the start. All the others had been killed or invalided out. Colonel Barstow had started as a young lieutenant, full of fire and noble speeches. Now he was as old and tired as the rest of us. We snickered about Lieutenant Rambeau as we walked. He was a mama's boy, a blond haired string bean with a mushy face that always looked ready to cry. He had reported to the regiment a few days ago but he disappeared somehow before the fighting started. The joke going around the camp was, who would shoot him first, us or them? Soldiers deserted other regiments before a fight, but not in the 31st Virginia. We waited for news, but didn't relax much. A couple of the younger boys babbled about beating the Yankees again, but the old hands quickly shut them up. By now, we knew we could beat them and beat them, but they would still keep coming. We were sick, tired, cold, and hungry, and we didn't have much hope left. The gossip around the campfire was no longer about victory. A few diehards still kept trying to convince the rest of us that Massa Robert and old Stonewall would find a way to defeat the Yankees. Most of us didn't buy it. Now. Stonewall was dead. One of the kids asked, what would happen if General Lee got killed, but an old hand kicked him a few times and the kid slunk off, leaving the rest of us to brood about things. I couldn't help thinking how lucky that kid was to get up so lightly. We had just lost our father, and that dumb kid was talking about losing our grandfather? We didn't need any more bad luck. Later that night, we found out that Stonewall wasn't dead. He was just badly wounded. He had been returning from the battlefield in the dark, and a nervous sentry, thinking he was a Yankee goblin or something, shot him. After two years of hurry up, then wait. It wasn't a hardship to wait for news. We lost so many men at Chancellorsville that I guess they forgot about our regiment for a while, so we loafed in our tents. Once we packed up all the dead men's belongings, they finally remembered us. They even gave us some food, probably pilfered from the Yankees' endless supply of everything. Then the word flew around the camp faster than wildfire a new recruit named Billy Rawlins had shot Stonewall. They didn't rightly know what to do with him, so they sent him home. After Stonewall died, The war went on and on, and the Yankees kept us on the run. When it was finally over, those of us who survived went back to our homes. I was one of the lucky ones. Pa had kept the farm going somehow, despite the voracious armies trampling back and forth across poor, battered Virginia. I had only been home for a couple of months when I heard that the man who shot Stonewall Jackson Billy Rawlins hanged himself. It seems his pa kept telling him that he killed the man who could have won the war for the Confederacy. I guess the damn fool kid must have believed him because he went into the barn, threw a rope over a beam, and ended his life. But that was a long time ago. I hadn't thought about Billy Rawlins for many years. Seeing that soldier in Dahlgren's store reminded me what had eaten so much of my soul away. It all came back to me from a distance, like hearing a voice on that new telephone invention. The useless waste of young men, the suffering that devastated so many lives, the ease with which we forgot the dead. All I could think of was that if I knew then what I knew now, I could have gone to see Billy. I could have told him that what he did was just one more crazy mistake in a succession of terrible events. That Stonewall couldn't have won the war. Hell, it was lost way before that. Only fools believed that we could win after the first year or so. The Yankees had everything. We only had pride and courage. Once they wore out our pride, courage just wasn't enough. But my understanding of things came much too late to help poor Billy. I couldn't help that trooper who lost his soul in the jungle. And I sure couldn't help any of the other innocents who don't start wars, only rush to fight them.
1: Thanks to Claude, Clayton, Christine, and Gary for sharing their stories with us today. I'd like to thank my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, who is graduating tomorrow with her MFA, so congrats to her. And thanks to you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Please spread the word about us, send us your stories, write us a review on iTunes. You know the drill by now, right? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more Secondhand Stories.